I'm Jacob Kruger, and this is the Write Your Screenplay Podcast. On this podcast, rather than reviewing movies, two thumbs up, two thumbs down, loved it or hated it, we look at them in terms of what we can learn from them as screenwriters. We look at good movies, bad movies, movies that we loved, and movies that we hated. This podcast is offered absolutely free and with no outside advertising. So if you like what you hear, please help us reach our goal of 10,000 listeners by subscribing to us on iTunes and writing us a review. You can find a link to do so at writeyourscreenplay.com slash podcast. All right. Hello, everybody. Thank you guys for joining us. This is a kind of exciting event for me for a couple different reasons. Um, a lot of you know we're up here at ITV Fest, and so we're doing a retreat here for our students, and we're doing a live version of my podcast. Uh, if you don't already know about my podcast, it's called the Write Your Screenplay Podcast, and we look at all kinds of movies. But instead of going like, are they good? Are they bad? Is it two thumbs up, two thumbs down? We look at them and we try to figure out what we can learn from them as screenwriters. But this is a special episode because I am so incredibly proud of the woman sitting to my left. So Pamela is a student of mine. She's taken pretty much every class at the studio, our retreats. Uh, she's part of our ProTrack mentorship program. And she just finished her first stint in a real writer's room on one of the most exciting shows of the year which is Mindhunter, the new David Fincher show. And so first, I just think she deserves a yes. round of applause for that. And these are the kinds of success stories that you want to see and that you want to remember because so many people ask me, like, is this really possible? Pamela is a writer who worked her ass off and made it. And so I want to talk to you about what was the process for you? How did you become a part of Mindhunter? Hi, everybody. First of all, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening. I got the job by word of mouth, by knowing somebody and having worked with that person and also having had a feature script that I had developed and that took 400 years to finish, um, but that I was able to show one of David's producers. And they read it, and, it's, and I got notes back from that producer, but they liked that writing well enough so that they were able to, when David was looking for another writer, they were able to say to David, hey, check this out. And uh, I got a phone call, and they said, hi. It's Wednesday, just say yes to this phone call, and we'd like you in Pittsburgh on Friday. And I was like, okay, I don't know what I'm saying yes to, but I can be in Pittsburgh on Friday. And then they said, good, you're writing for David Fincher. And I went, okay, yes. <laughs> I think one of the things that's exciting about this for me is, you know, oftentimes we get hung up on like, it's this script, or like, do I have the right idea? Or is the idea marketable? And, you know, this is actually, I think, can I tell them the, the, a little bit about it? Okay. Yeah, the title of the script is Pyro. And I, I think Pyro is a perfect movie for David Fincher. Um, and it's a really extraordinary script. Can you talk to me a little bit about the process of developing that script? It started with an idea about an artist whose medium is fire. 
I actually saw a video on YouTube that was a light piece that somebody had a dragon that was flowing across a building. And I went from there to fire, which I think is an amazing thing, and started writing this script. And had kind of come up with characters and kind of come up with the story. I knew what the beginning was, and I sort of knew what the end was. And I got completely lost in the middle of it, which is, you know, where writers end up in hell. And <laughs> at that point, I went to a writer's conference in LA, my first one, and it was kind of, okay, I'll go to a writer's conference because I've never been, so I'll go to a writer's conference and see what it is. And walked into a room, and Jake was doing a pitching session. And it was one of those moments, you know, where, where you, when you meet somebody and you're like, oh, right person for me. And that just, that happens to all of us. And sometimes it happens often and sometimes it happens rarely. But when, in my world, what I've learned is when that happens, it's like you grab hold and you stay there. And it took me two years to finally be able to get in a position in my life where I could play with Jake. And in working with you on Pyro, what we found and what I've learned from you that was invaluable in working with Fincher was taking theme and using it as your guiding, like that was my roadmap. I knew what I was writing suddenly and I, we threw out characters, we created new characters, we threw out entire sequences, we added more sequences and now all of a sudden I have like car chases and foot chases and roof running and blowing shit up and <laughs> you know, all that other stuff and it works it's not gratuitous it works and it's the right thing so talk to me a little bit about your process as a writer um, because you have a very intuitive process and you know I think a lot of writers get kind of hung up on the idea of like where they're going and one of the cool things that I saw as your writing developed was we had all these chunks right <laughs> and all these, these different chunks, and you would sometimes come with them like, I don't actually know where all these chunks go, um, or I'm not exactly sure who this character is. Uh, I, we had characters who, who switched gender, right? Can you talk a little bit about that process and how you discover that stuff. I have to think a lot. And Jake at one point finally said to me, look, don't go so deep, please. Don't go so deep, just right on the surface, because otherwise I'm like, Wow, maybe this person is like gonna turn their hair orange. It's gonna be great. Um, so, the biggest discipline I think I had to learn was getting out of my own way. Was stop trying to write. That for me was the most important thing. I've done some acting, and it's the same thing in my experience as acting, where if I walk onto a stage or in front of a camera and I try to act gonna suck and if I just arrive on stage and let it flow and trust whatever it is that's talking through me it works and it works well and it, the, I've had that same experience with writing and that's what I brought to the table with Fincher as well so I just think it's awesome how sometimes we manifest things that we don't even realize we're manifesting so uh, we got to the end of this two-year process to tell you that Pamela rewrote that script like 400 times, 
probably doesn't even describe what that was. And then she got all these notes from the producer and she rewrote the script again, which has been another good six months, Yeah. right? Uh, and I, I think, have you typed the end? Are we yeah, the end? no, yes. I just sent it to her. <laughs> she literally just typed the end, right? Um, There's an incredibly long process. And, and it, it's one of the things that, you know, a, a lot of writers, they're like, you know, do I have what it takes to make it, right? Or is this idea good enough? Or is this script good enough? And I think one of the reasons that Pamela has succeeded is because of her tremendous work ethic. And I can tell you, in my experience working with writers, that I will take a writer who's got the work ethic over the writer who it flows easily for any day. You know, there are some people like, they just start typing in like the words like magic and gold. But sometimes those people don't actually have the experience with struggle to go like, okay, I'm gonna do this again. I'm, oh, it didn't work, I'm gonna do it again. Um, so Pamela, uh, we're about, almost done the first draft of Pyro. And Pamela says, you know, Jake, I've decided as my next project, I wanna learn to write something on a deadline, because this thing took me two years, and I, 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 grew, I grew so much as a writer, you know, and I feel like I got it now, but I, I need to learn to write fast. And the next thing I knew, she was writing, on insane deadlines on Mindhunter. She just like manifested it and got hired. What, what was, for you, what's the difference when you're writing alone versus coming into an existing show and having to, to write those characters? I mean, I got lucky. I got to work with David Fincher and my experience of working with David Fincher is that he is willing to give anything to the creative process. He was available 24-7. His schedule was like insane, and I never took him up on it, but in my conversations with him, he was like, call anytime. If you have any question, call. Um, and he was willing to play with what if. Yes, here's my outline. Yes, here's what I've been told, but I'd like to play with this a little bit. I'm not sure that the character, I think we could do more with the character. I think the character, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, go ahead, write it, write it long. You know, if you give me 200 pages for 60 pages, I'm fine with that. Let me see it and let me participate in playing with it. So I got the best of, I mean, you, you can't get better. And it was about being of service to somebody else's story. You know, that's what I was there for. I was there to support him in telling the story he wanted, which meant not only doing what he asked for, but listening and trying to find those pieces that he was maybe implying or wasn't quite 100% clear about yet, and giving him the stuff to look at so that he could go, yes, no, no, this doesn't work, yes, this works. And that accepting that the no's were gonna be part of the process of finding what was yes. And, and not taking it personally, because it isn't. I mean, it's his project, so. There's, how do you step into a character that you didn't create? Finding what's true for me. So, Mindhunter, because it comes out today so I can finally talk about it, and there are some things I won't be able to talk about or answer because I signed a confidentiality agreement with them. Um, Mindhunter is the story of two guys. This takes place in the 1970s. 
uh, late 1970s, early 80s. Two guys are FBI agents and who develop the BSU, the BAU. Um, so they're at the very beginning of using psychology as a way of figuring out how the criminal mind works. So this is really not my area, number one, of expertise. Number two, I just never woke up in the early morning and went, I want to write about serial killers. Just really wasn't, I'm not interested in knowing how somebody cuts up somebody and puts them in a garbage can. Um, and the idea of writing police people who I have never been a police person um, was, was a thing. So it was about finding what would make me be the best writer I could be so that I was the best tool for David. And for me to be something that he can use to unlock doors, um, it was, okay, I've got Holden, and he's like all about Holden, and I've got Tench, and he is He's an older guy who's married, so what do I relate to? Well, I can relate to Holden because he's just curious. Holden is curious, he will do anything to fill, you know, what if. And Tench is all about, look, let's do it this way. And I know, that for me, I know both of those things. I know all about like, oh God, how exciting, what if. And I know all about, you know, let's do that. So I found those pieces with them. And then with the serial killers that I wrote, it was about not going into all of the like, oh, when they were a child, they were beaten up, and therefore they cut their mother's head off. Um, yeah. but, but the thing of solid being neglected or being lonely or having a way of seeing the world that nobody else sees. You know, I, I see a mosaic when I look at the table. I like to kill animals. It's the same thing. <laughs> I mean, kind of, sort of, you know. And then also, also finding those things of where does somebody want to control. So for me, it was about finding that, that common ground. Yeah. I wanted to talk to you about the way you write action as well. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, like, what's the process of how you approach that? Verbs. <laughs> My entire life comes down to verbs. It's kind of like, um, I start with the feeling of it. A lot of the time I start with, like for Pyro, I had to listen to a lot of techno acid house <laughs> and um, a lot of like Snow Patrol helped a lot, and um, some Nine Inch Nails, and that kind of stuff. That's where I had to go with Pyro, because, so Jake and, the, and Jess and everybody talk about um, the fact that there are three ways that you can, that we take in information, auditory, visual, and kinetic. And I'm primarily kinetic, so that's, so to write, action for me, I have to start with how does it feel? And then I have to go to how does it look? So like the roof running sequences. The roof running sequences, I had to talk to some roof runners who are friends, then I had to watch some roof running, some of the great roof running video stuff on YouTube. And then I had to look at pictures of roofs. 
because I needed a sequence of roofs, each of which would look like a different roof, and which I could write the slug line and then the sequence so that the director, the person reading, would be able to see it. So it's like exterior collapsed warehouse. The warehouse roof is collapsed into a V, um, blah, blah, blah. I can't even quote it because I wrote it. And now I don't remember the word. But <laughs> they run. Um, and then they jump and they leap and stuff. But so I, so I needed the feeling of Danny and Haley, who are two teenage roof runners, pushing. Because that, that's what I knew. I needed forward momentum and I needed this sense of flying free and of taking a chance, daring because they're teenagers, and that's what you do when you're a teenager, you push the boundaries of stuff. And once I got that feeling, then I knew that it was flying, and then I knew it was roof running. And once that happened, then I knew what the verb was. And once I had the verb, I was able to write it. And with the motorcycles at the party, it was just about watching motorcycle stuff. And I started with Halloween. And I started with burning. I don't know if that answers any of the I questions. I think it's a great it's a great place to begin that discussion. And and I think one of the things you were talking about Fincher, talk you know, send me 120 pages. I don't care. Yeah. For an hour long episode, a lot of screenwriting classes are not taught by screenwriters, and so you get taught like the final product, but not the path to get there. But when you work with the the real masters, got people like Fincher, they know that this is a process that needs to breathe. And um, that, you know, in a way, your early draft is like a form of research. And I think that's kind of what you were talking about, is like, you do the research where you go to the roofs, right? Or look at pictures of the roofs or talk to the roof runners. You do the research where you're like imagining it in your mind and how does it need to feel before you've actually articulated each moment. Um, you do the research of writing the bad draft of the scene or the long draft of the scene and just kind of sitting in the scene to find that one line that you need or before you start to tighten it, tighten it up. And then there's another side of it, which is like the imaginative research, right? Yeah. Now, and you came onto that project and like started writing real fast. <laughs> so yeah. what was it like having to write these serial killers without getting that full research period that most people would get? Because a lot of these are based on real people, right? They're all based on real people. Yeah. So the outline I was given and the assignment I was given was had scenes that were interviews with Siri. So it has these elements. It has elements of personal story about each of the characters. It has elements of them prepping for interviews, them doing the interviews, and post-interviews. And when I landed on the ground, I knew that I was going to have to do research on the serial killers that I had been assigned because what David had said was we need based in reality. I, I don't want any pretend. So you'd better know your stuff and you'd better write from truth about their true lives. And I want to discover something that I didn't know about these serial killers. Now, He's done a lot of research because it's his show about serial killers and he's the one who's chosen the serial killers. So it's like, wow, how do I find something that David Fincher 
doesn't know. Oh my God. Um, so based on that, I knew I was going to need time to do research. And we had a, within three weeks, turn in a draft of this episode. So what I said to him was, look, I'm going to do the personal stories first. Because that way I can find out about the characters. I'll know about the characters and who they are by the time I get to the interviews. And that means that I can do the research while doing the characters. And because we have such a short turnaround, as opposed to waiting until I have a full script, I'm going to give you the scenes, the personal scenes ahead so that you can read them and you can give me notes on them so that I can fix your notes while I'm doing the interviews. And then I did the research. And in doing the, the thing that was tricky for me in doing the interviews was that because this is a period piece, because it's the 19, mine is I think 1981, and my serial killer is an extremely well-known well serial killer. I had to, in my head, learn everything there was to know about that serial killer up to 1981. And I needed to make sure that in my head I didn't know anything that happened after 1981. And because it's about the psychology of why these people do what they do, I needed to also know everything about, that they knew about psychology up to 1981, but nothing about psychology and the science of the mind after 1981. So that was part of the first step. And then the second step was watching video, any video that existed of that serial killer, um, because of the mannerisms and the, the, the delivery, because for me, the music of how the voice sounds and how they deliver language and how they physically act is one of the ways that I can get inside a character. And then reading transcripts of trials, looking at interviews, reading any other press, and then looking for the weird piece of information that would be the one weird piece of information that David Fincher did and I want praying that I find it. <laughs> Give me something, anything. Um, and luckily enough, I found it and when I found it and I told him about it, he was like, oh my God, that's great. Send me the article, let's include it. So I finished the first pass on the interview and I wrote the interview first. And then I went back and wrote the pre, because now I knew what they were gonna talk about, so I knew what they wanted to know from the interview, knew what the question they would ask. And then in the post, I knew what kind of answer they would give. And one of the other things that David said was what he wanted, was he said, I do not want these people to come to a resolution. This is too early on in the process. So they don't, this is not, standard TV. I do not want TV writing. I want them to come away with, okay, we've learned this next thing and I think this is true and maybe it's true, so let's add it to the book because we think it's true. Let's add it to our manual for how the FBI is gonna track down serial killers. Um, and that to me was fascinating. The thing that he said to me that, I, that was like my little click into David Fincher's mind was, I want to see all the things that they tell you not to write about. And that was like a whole 
wow, now I get to spend the time finding what you're never given. We're never given. Not as directors, not as actors, not as writers. You know, we're told, here's, here's the information. I want to be Winnie the Pooh, and so I went out and I bought a costume, and I went trick-or-treat. <laughs> and my mom loved me. The end. And it's like, mm -mm, no, not, not if you're working with David Fincher. I, I think there's, there's so much that's exciting about that, um, you know, because there's so much bad information out there, right, about like what you're supposed to do. And people ask me all the time, my students are always like, you know, does it always have to, does your character always, and like anytime somebody says always to you, you know they're lying to you, because at the end of the day, this is art. And at the end of the day, the thing that's going to distinguish you is the same thing that distinguishes Fincher, is the same thing that distinguishes Pamela, which is that it's not by playing by the same rules that everybody else is using. If you do that, then you're going to end up writing the same crap everybody else is writing. It's about breaking those rules. And even the concept of Mindhunter breaks those rules. Writing interview scenes, that's like the no-no of all no-nos, right? Like, there is nothing harder to do than write an interview scene. Can you talk a little bit about how did you find structure underneath an interview? How did you, how did you make those interviews move as opposed to just being informational? Um, I treated them as their own little movies was part of it. So there was, you know, there were acts. It's kind of like, to me, it's like building a car. I guess, and I've never built a car, but I've fantasized about somebody else building a car. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you're building the car and you're using the wrench and there comes a moment where you like put the wrench down and you pick up the screwdriver and then you put the screwdriver down and you pick the wrench up again. And it's kind of, to me, the same thing in terms of the tools of writing. So, I started by knowing that Here's the central question I'm going to use. Here's the, they're going to learn about who's responsible. How much responsibility is somebody going to take about something? And that's what they're going to take away. And I don't know what they're going to take away about responsibility yet. But then that gave me a field of play. And then I went back and I looked at all of the research on the serial killer and I was like, okay, write the scene from the point of view of the serial killer. So I wrote it from, he walks in, he tries to take control of the room, this is the stuff he wants to say, this is the way he wants to act, and I finished the scene from his point of view, and then I went back and I rewrote it from each of the other characters, the two, you know, Holden's character and then from Tench's character. And to me, by writing it those three ways, that's how I found the want. Mm, yeah. So they're playing their own game, and their game is not necessarily a chess game. And the guys who are with the FBI may be playing a chess game. So you've got people playing different games in the room. Yeah, I love that answer, because it connects to back to that idea of want, right? And back to that idea of structure, that it ain't about the information that comes out. It's about the game the character's playing with each other. It's not about the informational transaction in the interview. It's about the emotional transaction between the characters. And the idea that every character actually thinks they're your main character, which is why you have to really be able to step into each of those points of view. That like, girl number three thinks this is girl number three's movie. 
and you have to be able to step into girl number three's point of view and see the scene from her perspective in order to do it in a believable way. And I think that's one of the things that gives your work such a feeling of richness is just that incredible amount of empathy. So I think this might be a great time to open it to some questions. There's a question. Yes. Uh, Shout it out so we can get you on our faraway microphones. Hello. <laughs> I have like a hundred questions, but I'm curious about your process and how much of your process you brought into it and how much of Fincher said this is how it's going to work. It was all my process and it was my process in service to David. In my experience of working in performing arts and in collaborative art form, I figure that I'm here in order to bring you what I can bring you. And if you don't like what I bring you, then you'll find somebody else. And that's okay, because it's yours. It's not mine. And if I pretend to be somebody I'm not, then I'm not giving them truth. And as a writer, if I don't give you truth, then my stuff is crap. That's, at least for me, I can't write bullshit. So it was all me in service to David. What advice would you give to people who are about to sit down and write collaboratively with one or more other people? Because I know that can be challenging if you've never done it before. Um, what challenges did you find and what advice would you give? I'll, I'll give you the good example and the bad example because that's so much more fun. Um, five, ten years ago, I worked on a project with somebody who was a friend to start with to write a show. And she's smart. She's really smart. And I'm pretty smart. And the very first thing we did when we sat down is we said, we need some ground rules for how to do this so we do not destroy the personal relationship. And the first rule we put on the table was we will be kind to each other, period. Doesn't matter what the hell is going on, we will be kind. I'm advising one of Jake's other students right now on a project that he's walking through right now. And he's lucky enough to have a friend who has a story, who has money. And so he's writing a script. And he called me and said, like, oh my god. And I said, look, first of all, decide what's most important. Is the project more important or are the relationships more important? Because you need to be clear about what you're fighting for, right? And for this other writer, he, as soon as I said that, he was like, oh, the friendship. I do not want to screw up the friendship. And I was like, okay, so now you know. If it comes to a breaking point, you know what you're going to choose. And I said, if you're going to, and this is something actors know a lot about, I think. When you are acting, and directors know. I mean, we all know it in this room. If you're going to create a work of art, you need to be vulnerable, which is very scary for the majority of us because it is not the norm in our society today. The norm in our society is to put up a wall, put on a mask, be the strongest, be the one who knows. You never say, I don't know. You always have an answer and all of that other crap. And that won't work in my experience if you are actually going to get to a, a room that works. So for, <laughs> with Courtney, 
this project we worked on, we ended up having to kill so many babies. It was just like so freaking sad. So I had a character, Will, and I loved Will. And at one point, Kurt, and he was like, Will's got to go. Out of here. I had a total meltdown. I like stamped my feet. I had a two-year-old temp temper tantrum. And I went out and walked, and I couldn't work for three days. And Courtney was like, and then a couple of weeks later, it was like, Christian's got to go. And she had a temper tantrum, and she left, and couldn't work for three days. Because we had to grieve the, the character, or grieve the scene. We had to kill off a whole battle sequence. It was so sad, man. Um, you know, after all the research we did on the, the knives and how you use them. Um, but, uh, <laughs> no, it was very sad, man. But in having those temper tantrums, because we had the rule on the table of being kind, the heated arguments we had about what was going to happen in the script and how we were going to do it and what we were going to throw out and what we were going to add and when we brought in some a third party where somebody else read it and came in and said blah 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 so we would now argue about the notes we were given it was never an attack it was never an argument it was a heated discussion so that's what i would say is the first thing is sitting down and deciding what's most important the relationship or the project and then be kind. Be kind, be courteous, and be aware that you're working with people who have to be vulnerable the way you have to be vulnerable. And if they can't and you can't, don't just shake hands and agree not to work together. Mm. So that would be the works really well together. The not working well together for me is, so, Again, in my experience with stuff, with working any project, you have the period that's the what-if period, where you toss out a whole pile of ideas, and what if we did this, and maybe he goes to the grocery store, or he gets a can of soda and throws it at his mother, or you know whatever it is. And then there comes a moment in time where you have to stop the what-ifs. You have to stop them and move on to the, okay, here's the plan. And the plan may change. You know, you may like get partway through the plan and go, dude, we should go back to this what if and bring it in and look at it again. One of the projects that I worked on where that didn't work was a project where they stayed with what if. And they walked out of the writer's room with a whole pile of what if and a whole pile of pretend outlines. But they were pretend outlines because nobody had actually sat down and made a decision. So that's not a good choice either. There has to be, in my experience, a consensus and or somebody who is in charge, a real showrunner, a real actual honest to God showrunner, which is like such an exciting human if they are kind. So hope that answers the question. Beautiful. Yes. Um, I just started working as a writer's assistant in the last two years, and one of the things I never saw coming in the room is kind of what you just spoke to, which is the idea of the writers aren't there necessarily to be right all the time and show off how smart they are, it's to figure out a way to please the showrunner and, and fix the problem that they have. Um, and I just wondered if you could speak to what it's like to try and adapt to someone else's creative tastes um, and, and how you do go about doing that. So the question's about being in a writer's room and the, the need to please a showrunner and how do you adapt to somebody else's creative taste? For me, I would say be careful of the words you choose. 
to please somebody is a very specific verb. And to please somebody puts very specific parameters on who has power, who has status, and how you're going to respond to that power and status. So just in the same way that if you write a character, Joe walks into the office and wants to please Harry, who's the more powerful? We all know that it's Harry. So in my world, to be of service means that I am helping you as an equal. It's an equal partnership. Regardless of the title, it's still, again, about human beings. So if you have asked me to come and work with, not work for, nobody ever works for, people work with, you are being of service as a writer's assistant because if they ask you to get lunch, what you've just done is given that person an additional 45 minutes in which to write something so that show is better. Mm -hmm. And that is what being of service is in my world. And I think it's important when you're coming up new as well, um, there are going to be people who don't like you. <laughs> um, and in fact, if your writing doesn't piss somebody off or your ideas don't piss somebody off, you're probably not doing a very good job. And I think a lot of writers fall, especially in their first gig, they fall into that kind of pleasing mode, right? And we do it, we try to please people, we don't even have a boss, right? And we're like, well, Blake Snyder said do this, you know, or Sid Field said do that, or my screenwriting teacher said do this. And we, you know, Neil Gaiman has a quote that I love. He says, if somebody tells you exactly what's wrong with your story and exactly how to fix it, they are always wrong. <laughs> but if somebody tells you what their experience of your story is, they're always right. And I think that your job as a writer is always to serve the project. And if people don't like you because of it, they will fire you and that will be good for you. Um, because you'll get to work on a project with people who get you. Um, and that doesn't mean you should be a jerk. Sometimes getting lunch is serving the project. If you fight every battle that's not serving the project, you know, if every meeting has to be an hour long because of you, that's not serving the project. But if you're thinking about what are the real needs of the projects, what, what are the things that I can set aside that are just my own ego, right? But what are the things that, if I can just help them understand this one concept, the whole project's going to be better. And I think that happens with your own writing as well. What is the one thing that if you can focus on that thing, it's going to make everything else better? And then throw away all the other opinions and all the other rules and all the other, don't, don't please anybody but look at what they, people need from you and look at what the project needs. I want, I'm sorry, yeah. I would have one other thing I would add to that. So, an experience that I had with a showrunner. I had a moment with him right at the very beginning and I wasn't thinking, I was like, hi, hello, it's nice to meet you or whatever. And we were having some difficulty with the project and uh, I don't even remember what he said, but I just said, yeah, you know, my job is to make mistakes what I'm going to do. That's how you find stuff out. If you're not making a mistake, you're not pushing the envelope. If you're not pushing the envelope, then why are you here on a certain level? That's what a rehearsal process is. That's what a rough draft is, etc. And this guy, all he did was glance at me, but like I suddenly realized that I had just stripped him of all power. He had absolutely, there was no way he was going to be able to make me feel like crap. So do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, I don't need to prove to you how great I am. Uh, what I need to do is support you by trying to give you as many ideas as I can and to listen. 
Listen, listen, listen. So we're about to wrap up. Pamela, you're sitting here with a quote. And so I thought maybe you could take us out with the quote that you brought. Okay, so I call Jake my sensei. I'm not pushing this project, but I think of writing like a martial art. You have to get up every morning, you have to practice. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to, mixing metaphor, where's Jeff's? Um, uh, you're not going to be able to hit the ball out of the park or have a good sexual experience unless you practice. You know. So one of the things that Jake said to me, not said to me, said in the class, but I wrote it down and I kept it with me, is a certain demands, concede nothing, reject nothing, just listen, try to understand instead of dominate, try to find common ground. And that, to me, was a guiding, I have things that I keep on that and where's the ball? <laughs> I stay by my computer. Beautiful. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope that you enjoyed this podcast. Again, we make this podcast available totally free and with no outside advertising. So if it was helpful for you, please help us reach our goal of 10,000 listeners by subscribing to us on iTunes and writing us a review. It really does make a big difference in keeping this podcast free for everyone. You can find a link to do so at writeyourscreenplay.com slash podcast. For a complete transcript of this podcast or to learn more about studying with me or my faculty in New York City, live online, on one of our international retreats, or as part of our one-on-one ProTrack mentorship program, you can learn more on our website, writeyourscreenplay.com. Mm-hmm.